Action! Okay, so um, welcome back to Set Notes. I'm here uh, with Rodney Charters, who's had a, a, a lustrous career, 50 years, shooting television, film and documentary. We're going to go through many things. We're going to talk about some of his work, some of the work that you'll be more familiar with, and his connection to technology and how he's still kind of um, super enthusiastic about the new movements in cinematography. We're going to talk about uh, LED volumes. Uh, we're going to talk about um, lenses, lighting. We're going to talk about some of the, the films he's worked on over the years. We're going to talk about his television show, 24, that if you're not familiar with, you should be. Yeah, we're going to cover loads of stuff. So um, so strap in. So, um, well, I mean, the first thing to say is that, you know, you've had, I mean, doing a bit of research for this talk, I just couldn't believe how much you've shot over the years. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you were saying yourself that it's quite shocking for you to even take yeah. it in, the amount yeah, yeah, you shot. Yeah. It's amazing. I, yeah. I can turn on streaming services and find something that I shot almost every service. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. That's quite Crazy. a body of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I had great luck to be on a series that ran for 10 years straight and, you know, mm. nine years. There was, a, there was a writer's strike there I, mm. that actually went very badly for the writers, fortunately. Would you say that, that the show that you're talk, referring to is 24, of course, would yeah. you say that there's, uh, that's a watershed moment in your career? Was it kind of like... Oh, absolutely. Um, it catapulted me into... Uh, I, I went in the break between seasons, I went to Japan because I loved Japan and it was an experience to go. And I think my, one of my children was there. And um, I said to Fox corporate people you know look i could do some interviews there and they said okay and i was i hadn't directed anything at that point but i ended up doing nine interviews in one day just as a dp on this crazy because the japanese went nuts for the show they didn't serialize it it came out on cassette once a week and you go into a, a video store and there'd be a thousand cassettes on racks waiting for the japanese in tokyo to pick them up you know what's happening all across the country so and one, Britain was so like that too. One episode of, was one video. One uh, video. And, and v they v changed v the videos VHS once a week. It was VHS, yeah. yeah. Because I remember my experience of watching it, because I, I remember very, very clearly when I first saw it, because it changed my viewing of television. Because what we, I did with my girlfriend at the time was we binge-watched it. Yeah. And we had to watch two and a half episodes. Because one episode wasn't enough. Yeah. Two episodes, you couldn't get to the end of the second episode because the cliffhangers were so, like, it was like, a, a drug yeah I, i'd never seen anything i'd yeah. never had a viewing experience previously yeah. Yeah. that felt like a drug like you yeah. had to have more you had to know what's no more yeah. so we had to go through a half we had to go halfway into an episode yeah. and then force ourselves to stop it because if we got to the end then the cliffhanger would kick in and we'd have to have watch another episode we were always in people's houses filming and always they would say for god's sake don't tell us what's going on why you're here we don't want to know you know and then we put them in a hotel of course and they said, we're waiting for the box set to come out at Christmas. So they were completely dead ears yeah. right through this whole season of, of transmission until the box set came up and then they would binge it. And, you know, two, two days of straight up 24 hours a day, people would do that. Yeah. And it was like a drug. Absolutely. I can't remember before that of having a, that, ex personally, I never, I didn't have that experience before. No. So is that, is that a cultural thing? Do you think that, do you think that was the first point of binge watching TV? The, the fact that. The box set came out, I think, coincided ushered in, with, with, yes, um, it ushered in the whole notion of binging. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, because prior to that, you had to do the Japanese thing, and you only got one episode yeah. a week. And, of course, in Britain, it was the same. Yeah. It was broadcast, and that was it. Yeah. But there were a lot of older folk who would say, you know, my wife and I, my wife cannot watch the show unless we have a break. We need to control it because it's so terrifying to her. <laughs> yeah. And her blood pressure goes through yeah. the roof, and I'm yeah. frightened that she's going to have an event, you know. So the cinematography had a lot to do with that, didn't it? I mean, part, part of the concept was the time concept. Do you want to explain a little bit to people that haven't seen the show? Yes. Well, the first was, thing that was fascinating, of course, it was a real-time event. So we would stay in one location for three weeks at a time sometimes. We scheduled two hours to be shot for 45 minutes uh, as a 15-day block. And uh, I was the, cinema, the only cinematographer on it, so it was amazing. It was helpful with me because we didn't change locations that often. And if there was, they would cut me loose and the B camera would come in and take over for a day uh, to scout. But the, the critical thing was that you were real-time, easy location. Once you got there, you could light it. But the big challenge was that the director, Stephen Hopkins, wanted to shoot everything in real time. So if it was a five-page scene, with Kiva running through CTU, uh, you had to follow it. So a camera was always handheld. Uh, we managed to get XLs, and it was Super 35. Uh, so we were with three perf, and we had six-minute 400 roll and a 16-minute 1,000-foot mm. roll. But often, because Kiva would like to repeat the take immediately without interference, we would roll three times on a five-page scene. Mm. Only with a thousand footer. And were you were you using free perf? Uh, just explain to uh, the audience that free perf is free perforations of pull down yes, per frame. Yes, it, it naturally gave you. It was an invention of Canadian, uh, Scandinavians. There, mm. there was a group of people mm. that brought it in. But three perf gave you a sixteen by nine frame automatically. Yeah. The gate, of course, had to be changed in the camera. Yeah. But your running time went so up increased. So you could have yeah. a thousand foot load and it yeah. would last for how long would a thousand Six, foot? Sixteen minutes. Right. And that was important to try and get this, this thousand foot was normally ten. Right. So you got a lot got more running minutes. time. Yeah. And that was important to give it this feeling of, of, of um time no break in time kind of thing. So long well, long time. In takes. in the directorial kind of intent, mm. after you were blocked mm. and got things going, first off Kiefer wouldn't read the script really thoroughly unless it was something you needed to tell him about. Mm. He would come in and he had a, this wonderful woman who was a reader for him. And she was the only one that could read at the pace that he delivered his dialogue. If you look at the, the So he, the had, well, he had an earpiece then? No, no, uh, no. He, no. He would learn it right on the spot. Oh. He'd come in at yeah. six in the morning and we'd yeah. be ready. And by seven o'clock, seven thirty, eight, you know, we were rolling by eight. He'd learned all of the lines that he needed. And uh, he, would, he would rewrite them on the spot and we'd issue pages. And the writers kind of were didn't want to get involved with Kiefer in a battle over mm. dialogue. Mm. And so he, he get made it his own. And quite frequently, he would come in and look at the blocking and say, "My, I would not do that. Mm. I'm going to come in this mm. door and not that door. And mm. so you'd be flying on the seat of your pants to, to relight. Did that help an energy, the energy on set of not knowing where you were going? The energy you? went up tenfold when he was on the set. And we would have five parallel stories. So you got a little bit of respite when you... Kiefer had gone and you were dealing with other characters. But when he was on set, it was intense. Right. And that's the energy that is easily filmable at that point. Right. And we never got in the way of it. We gave him freedom to go anywhere. We didn't set marks. 
I had to light in the surround, mm. light the space, because half the time you'd be looking at him bursting through a door, you'd track backwards with him, and then you'd make a 180 pan to the other character mm. in the room. Mm. You know, one of those great scenes where he, he breaks into a cell and there's a guy in there in, in chains and he kneecaps him <laughs> right on camera, just doesn't even pause. And you stuff that had never been seen before. One of the first times we realized that we had a lot of power, well, first was 9-11 happened while we were shooting uh, the second episode mm. and we were immediately in, you know. We and there's weird parallels about what was oh happening God, in the writing. Because the pilot featured a woman uh taking an air- airliner hostage mm. and then parachuting out of it. And we had to make some changes because Fox said we can't, we can't put this out in the wake of, because they were due to go to air almost a few mm. months later. So we had to make changes. And then one day in the second episode or the third episode, Kiefer was struggling with a Taliban uh, baddie, AK-47, and Stephen said, put the muzzle of the gun right against his head. And we said, so you can't do that. It, it's it's code. You have to put the muzzle at the neck. You know, mm-hmm. this is he said. Put the muzzle at his head, squatting down profile. So there was no way you could get around. As in code that this could never be broadcast. Yes, yeah. the, the the studios had these codes about mm-hmm. behavior with weapons, mm-hmm. and uh, the next day he said, "That's what we're going to shoot," and we did. And this is Kiefer who who demanded this. No, no, no it wasn't Kiefer. It was. In, conjunction he was very close he was always an exec on the show mm. and uh Stephen and him were very tight Stephen being the director yeah Stephen yeah. Hopkins yeah and he did 12 episodes the first season so he really set the tone for what mm. the series is he introduced the idea of multiple imagery um so when he um when other directors took over they carried that template forward absolutely and, yeah it was, absolutely. It was set then and yeah. and actually there were very few other directors the two guys did oh, you know, a hundred of the episodes between mm. them, maybe more, 150. How how much do you think your documentary training kind of prepared you for this television it was, work? It was everything without realizing it mm. because I, the, some of the most fun uh, moments of my career as a documentarian were fly on the wall, slating a role and having 10 minutes. You know, you pointed to the floor, there was nothing happening, but you'd make moves around the character so you could have cut points and all of that kind of stuff without hiding in the walls of the house or where you were, uh, whatever behavior was going on. So it lent itself easily to my understanding that Stephen said, okay, I'm at this end of CTU and we have 100 feet to the other end and Kiefer's going to walk from here. He's going to go to this desk. He's going to go to that desk. He talked to Chloe then he's going to mm-hmm. exit that at the back and I want to shoot in, in its entirety. Mm. So we would we would cover it with the handheld camera, tracking behind him, uh, to the side of him. Um, we had a B camera all the time, which had, in that setup, we had with a 420 lens on it, 150 to 420, which was a 2.8, wide open. Everything was wide open. And there's a short zoom, which was a Steadicam zoom that Panavision had put together, which was casino glass. Can I just ask you quickly, yeah. were you wide open for aesthetic reasons or just is this practical reasons? Being? It was practical. The stock was 500 ISO. Mm. And I, if we went out on the street at night, I pushed it. Mm. And for all of the car playback work that we were cheating with rear projectors, two mm. screens parked around the car. And they were very successful, but only at 1,000. Mm. So I had to push it as stock. Right. And, and the, the grain, pullers must have been... I mean, really earning their money. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 
um, Fox objected to half a million dollars in stock and processing everything. And they pushed like crazy for me to try all the new cameras, mm. Panavisions. Uh, everybody had a digital camera that we tried. And eventually they did side by side and Kiefer looked at his face and said, not my face on that, pointing at the digital one. So that was the end of it. Mm. So we finished the whole series on film. Mm. And then none of us really have ever shot film since. I mean, there are a few lucky souls. Yeah. But I, I'm happy to take advantage of the digital. Right. So, that, the, so at the end of 24 for you, that was when you moved into digital yeah. with every yeah. preceding kind of And I did a show. series on the Reb 1, which was mm. interesting. Yeah. Uh, there were challenges there. And the second season I... Was that your first foray into digital was Reb 1? On a bit? show, yes. Yeah. yes. So you finished 24 on film and then you moved yep. into shooting with the Reb 1. Towards the end, uh, the 5D came out mm. and through our connections, we managed to get was, them on was the Was it shame, uh, shame, Shameless? Shameless was after. Yeah. And that was on the Reb 1. That's the Reb 1. But yeah. the, the 5D showed up and yeah. we... We tested it alongside our film and went, oh my God, because you could hardly tell the difference. And, you know, we put, we put an 11 to 1 on it, so it was mm. crazy with this tiny box on one end <laughs> and this giant lens. Um, and we all went, this is, a, this is a new world. So you, you, when we... We didn't use them on the show itself. What we used them for were all the plates. So we had right. nine... Five Ds. So we're talking about shame. shame. No, this is on twenty four. Still on twenty four. Still right, so on twenty four. So you had. To, oh, I see. So you're using the five D on twenty four. Along, Eventually, along yes, yeah. to replace the DV cams. Right. We we'd always oh. have nine cameras, but yeah. there was DV cams in the beginning. Right. We had little Manila envelopes yeah. full of cassettes that yeah. were this angle that. So you angle. had two two main film uh, cameras, or how many? Yeah, there were two. There yeah. was an A and a B. Yeah. Uh, a was always. Um, 27 mil in mm. your face right alongside mm. Kiefer. It was super 35. Mm. And uh, B camera was always on this long lens. Just on, 400. Yeah, yeah, and he'd be on 40 foot of track, uh, yeah. diagonal, nightmare yeah. for focus pulling. We ended yeah. up getting a laser system, right? a white laser that you couldn't see. And that was constantly just on, his, yeah. on Kiefer's. And, and so the challenge is if, if you were photographing me like this, uh, a camera would be right here, mm. and their map box would start clipping the edge of the B camera shot because yeah. they'd have to move six feet just to clear yeah. an inch. Yeah, right. So there was my battle was always about policing. And were you operating the frame. Uh, at the time? No, 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 so, no. I, my first series, uh, which was a horror series in Toronto, I ended up doing everything, and they hired a, a DP from LA as mm. a director on an episode, and he came up and he said to me, this is going to kill you. You cannot do both. There, these are two separate jobs. Yeah, you need to relinquish it. And he talked them into giving me an operator, which probably saved my life because mm. it was insanely challenging to do mm. fast late night television series in the outskirts of the empire. Mm. You know, with Toronto, we we had to work pretty fast to keep our space. You know, but mm. brand new people, Toronto didn't have a long career of cinema. Of course, it does now. There are multiple generation people, but it was only when I got to Hollywood that there were people on my team that were four generations as mm. gaffers or grips mm. or electrics. You know, it was amazing. So the, was that hard for you to give up the um, looking for the eyepiece? Because at the time, were you lighting for the eyepiece when you were shooting I was, film? Uh, I was. I had a great gaffer, mm. and it was a challenge for me because the very first show I did was a 16-mil late-night television thing for CBS, and literally, I was given the job to take over, and I'd only done documentary before. Mm. 
So set prep protocol, understanding who was who on the set, what their jobs mm. were, was all foreign to me. And so I. What, to, and what show was this? It was it was a late night telly series. It was sixteen mil. I can't remember mm. the name of it. It's mm. on the IMDb. Mm. If I scroll down, I find it there. Yeah. But it was a lovely working experience. And I bought a little cook ten to thirty because mm. it was sixteen mil and mm. shot it on an SR two, mm. and um, we had a we had a lot of a lot of fun. It was a good learning experience. This was nineteen eighty. It would be in the eighties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was early days for me, but I, I'd done a series in here, this, actually. Um, the last doco series I did was uh, with Gerald Durrell. Was a series called uh, Durrell in Russia. Yeah, and we sh we shot that on sixteen mil, and then this other cinematographer, Mark Irwin, who had been uh, he'd done The Fly and so on for Cronenberg. Yeah. Cronenberg took too long to write, and he said, "I'm out of here." And he went to Hollywood, and he said, "I'm gone, but I'm going to give you this series because mm. I'd done I'd done a hockey movie with him mm. called Young Blood mm. on B camera, which was a nightmare because mm. it was ninety frames a second for us following the puck on mm. ice with fog. It was mm. insane. Before we um we talk more on that. Let's let's go. Cause this is quite sure. a good moment to go back into where it all originated from. Yeah. So you uh, you showed me. Uh, I you know saw you at your talk last week, and yeah. you had some really great footage of the beginnings of your career. Yeah. And you were quite influenced by. Well, let me ask you this: when when we when would you say you first had a sense of what cinema was? When as a as we a child, were New Zealand was very well off. Uh, there was a struggle right after the war, but by the time I was conscious of going to the cinema, we had five cinemas in a town of 20,000. It was crazy. But there was no television, so cinema was where you went. Mm. And uh, interestingly, my dad had, in 53, when the Queen came to our town, he made a documentary about the event. He pre-shot the town So your in dad color. was a photographer? He was a photographer. And so I very early grew up in the darkroom. Mm. It was the magic of processing i had my own camera and i shot so you I remember print kind of and being a child that you had a fascination with yeah with, yeah with there's pictures of me with a little eight mil movie camera yeah and we all my brother and i performed in movies that he made about it. and your father was a stills photographer he was a stills guy but he right. loved he loved movies there was yeah. a society they would bring in uh french movies 16 mm. millimeter and every you know the town people that were into imagery and and drama would go to the film society. And uh, he got the idea to make a little movie about me when I was about seven, about a goat that had been, you know, my, it was my childhood goat and it ran away and I got my mm. foot trapped on the railway station train. So a little narrative that your father yeah, wrote. Yeah, and, yeah, it was great. And you, what, you starred in it. I starred in yeah. it, yeah. And so, Do you still uh, have that? Anyway? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, it's quite memorable. And, and, you know, the Queen's Visit, they shot black and white when she arrived. Mm and processed it in mm. by hand, mm. exposed it, it was reversal film, mm. and then spliced it into the color, and got a cert for it from Wellington, went down on the rail car, came back, and they played it in the cinema three days after she left. So it was, yeah. it was a fun experience, because it wasn't Hollywood at all, but it, it had all of the foundation mm. of that, and I got access to his 16 mil Bolex and was able to use it at college. But that so, was a time at art school, we, nobody had any equipment, so it was big and borrow, and you know, so was, you never really had a stage in your life of not knowing what you were going to do uh, when you were older. Is, was it always a given that you were going to end up doing No, I, I, I went to university studying, wanted to study architecture, but oh, right. um, theoretical physics stumped me. Mm. Um, the practical was fine, but algebra and, and you know, and 
intense math. I, I didn't have a moment for that. And so I started going to the cinema. There were lots of them in Auckland. I could go for four movies a day and skip classes. Mm. <laughs> so that kind of made it happen for me. But at the same time, I never had a pathway to drama. I knew that I wanted to shoot, but documentaries seemed accessible. And even out of the Royal College, after I finished the course there, uh, with documentaries of w w what I was doing, you know. Was, so this is um, now coming to the UK. So you studied yeah. uh, initially architecture, was that in, in uh, New Zealand? University of Auckland in, yeah. in New Zealand, and, yeah. uh, and, and failed to get into the architecture school and, and segued into um, the art school. Right. And uh, there was a very fine still photographer there who'd been a time life guy and this is still in auckland you're yeah, in the art school still, in auckland, still yeah. there so this is a, like equivalent to a ba in bachelor of yeah. arts yeah. yes and yeah and then i made this short film with my dad's bollocks yeah. and it got into a film festival in sydney and we all trooped off to attend which was wild yeah um and then it got me into the royal college uh, right i think the and the royal college was what's that an ma yeah. It was an MA, yeah. and uh, at, in those days there was a film school based in the uh, Natural History Museum. There was a whale dissecting room that was quite vast, and they, that wow. became our studio yeah. and uh, down Queensgate. Yeah. Uh, but after so, the, film, the National Film School took hold in Beaconsfield, they abandoned the program. So. Right. So you were at the Royal College of Art, MA. What's that, a two-year course? Is it? it was three years. Three-year course. Yeah. And did you get your hands on actual film cameras? And you were, yes. Yeah. Yes. We and did had, you go through all the, process, all the different um, craft, crafts of filmmaking? As, as best they could. Mm. Uh, Tony Scott was a year ahead of me in the same school. And, and Ridley, of course, had already gone through the graphics department. Mm. RSA was already set up. So I ended up, when I graduated, working for Tony and Ridley and mm. commercials hung around. And then I went to the States and then ended up in Canada for 20 years of doing documentaries um, until so what, the dramas so came at me. What were the points where you – so you, you graduated uh, in the UK, you worked for Tony and Ridley Scott. What, uh, what was the notion of then traveling to the States? What Were you going to shoot? Um, was it, was, it was an interesting story. In, in my second year uh, – pop group from the states called seals and crafts came mm. and they were baha'is and i was a baha'i my mum had found the faith early on and i'd become a baha'i in japan on my way over to england and uh, they came and played the roundhouse and i did a documentary about them their being here and what their beliefs were and so on and i wanted to sell it to the baha'is in the states so could you explain what a baha'i is the baha'i faith is is a world religion that's Springs out of the background of Islamic teachings, but it basically teaches that all religious revelation is coming from the same God, and that the fundamental teachings are essentially the same, but they're modified for the group of people amongst whom they were given. Uh, so that now we've come of age, we know that we're a planet, then we know the only future for mankind is to be peaceful and unite. We can't do it any other way. Um, and so those are the teachings of Baha'u'llah, this prophet. Mm. Um, 1868, he appeared and gave these teachings. And so uh, the world center is in Haifa because his mm. body is there. He was exiled there, mm. uh, what was Akka in the old days. Um, so Jimmy and Dash, all of their, many of their songs uh, talk about the teachings of the faith, and the, so they're quite spiritual. So... I find myself now in a documentary mode, bought a couple of FX6s, mm. 
and we're struggling so you're re- to put you're together. Revisiting this story yeah, now, absolutely. After, after so t- um, bookends your career years, in yeah, a way. Yeah. So you started off doing a documentary, and yeah. now you're back with digital yeah. cameras. Yeah, amazing. I I actually was in the studio when they were cutting the the Summer Breeze mm. uh, title track mm. uh, in Los Angeles. Um, and my friend Jack was their keyboardist, and he mm. traveled with them for four years. So we're doing this documentary mm. now. So, um, um, so you said fifty years of shooting. Yeah, has it been fifty years? Well, yeah. f- the the doc- the little document, the film, mm. ten minute film that got me into the college was nineteen sixty six, I think sixty six, sixty seven. Mm. It took a while to finish it. Um, and how long were you in? So you left uh, the UK. You went to America, yeah. uh, and then w- were you shooting? I wasn't. I couldn't get permission to stay there mm. and I needed money and mm. I was at the Liberty Bell and I met a couple of Canadians mm. with stickers all over their camera and mm. their recorder and they said oh come come Toronto's lots of work in Toronto so I went there and because I was a New Zealander I got into the country without issues mm. and got a work permit and then then never really looked back I and, was and so what know, were you shooting at first what was your it, way I very quickly got a job uh, with a private network CTV and uh, was part of a five. They had five crews doing a 60-minute style show. Mm. Um, and so there, I was suddenly on the plane being sent all over the world. And this, so this, this is the period of your career where you were shooting documentary, yeah. was it? Yeah. Yeah. It was 16 mil. I, I, my dad helped me buy an Arri mm. 1, SR1. Mm. And uh, that's, that was my beast for mm. 20 years almost. One, two, and three in the end, and then then I then I, this drama experience began, and I said goodbye to Darkos. Mm. And what? So the first drama was the one we were referring the, to. Earlier, the first, the first one that I got with uh, was called. Um, it was a hockey movie. Um, God, what was it called? It's the most popular hockey movie out there. With Patrick Swayze was in it. Um, oh. Called Young Blood. Young Blood. Yeah, the movie was called Young Blood, right. and the. You know, the, we all knew each other in Toronto because it was a small community. When the first footage came back from the space with the IMAX camera, which was all Toronto, yeah, uh, they screened it down at the, a big IMAX theater that they had there, and everybody in Toronto went to screen this footage. What's it called? Young Blood. Young Blood. Yeah. Yeah. So the. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-six. Young Blood. Yeah. And th- th- this. Uh, this was your your first uh, yeah, narrative. Yeah, he, he came to me, uh, Mark Irwin, the DP, came and said, look, I want you to shoot B camera on this. Yeah. And uh, he said, look, it's the same. The camera weighs a bit more. The magazines are obviously heavier. And I yeah. was like, okay. So that's going from 16 to 35. Yeah, yeah. just jump, start yeah. like that. How did you notice, because uh, I've always, when I shot 16, my career started with 16 as well, uh-huh. and when I jumped to 35 for the first time, I was really disappointed because I loved the kind of, um, the forgiving nature of 16. It had a sort of magical quality to it. When I went to 35, everything looked too real and sharp, yeah, yeah. And, and the flaws in my lighting were way more obvious yeah. than on 16 when I kind of got away with murder, I felt. Well, in the case of this movie, Mark was lighting it, mm. and uh, he's a soft light guy. Yeah. Um, and it was more or less a documentary because it was a lot about the hockey action on the mm. ice. So we had we had a peewee with skates on it, and uh, all those kind of tricks Being slid that you around do. the ice. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. But going out of focus at ninety frames a second is mm. embarrassing, and we had dailies in those days. Right, so, so you had to watch loads of that. Yeah. 
slow motion as most embarrassing switch. thing and there'd yeah. be a few frames near the <laughs> yeah. end that, yeah. and that's truthfully all they needed to use yeah, but right. when you're in with the whole team is watching and yeah you go oh my so god so your oh day you would start your day by watching a watching a previous days of rushes no we watch them in the evening but, watch them but in the evening. yeah and then we saw the previous day yeah it was horrendous experience mm. I mean, I got used to doing that. And in the end, I got into trouble on a movie in LA and Alan Davio was available. I was mm. able to phone him because mm. he's such a lovable guy. Mm. And uh, I had a long chat with him. He said, oh no, you have to go to the the high-speed daily screening in the morning. I mm. said, what time is that? And he said, five, 5 a.m. So you had to get up at that time, drive to the lab, high-speed screening dailies. And if you didn't like anything, they would they were lovely. They would reprint. Mm. And make adjustments for you, and then you, and then after that, you go on to set. Yeah, and go on to set. How many? See, lunches, sort of dailies uh, were at lunch, mm. and but by then you didn't have that anxiety because mm. you'd already seen mm. them, and that was a great thing about film. Mm. It was terror mm. because you commit to an exposure, you commit to something you you think it's working, and but you really don't know, and you don't know what the lab's going to mm. do with it or how. The, I didn't have a long experience of watching thirty-five mil dailies. So you sleep better at night now. You shoot oh, yeah. digital. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Mm. It's a it's a piece yeah. that, that is not part of that early. Do you experience. find that you take more? Because I what I realized with um, my work is that I took more risks with lighting now than when I was shooting film. Yeah. So I can be way more edgy with lighting now. Yes. Whereas before I I kind of wanted to be edgy, but I was so worried that so I was worried. Get sacked. Yeah. You always give yourself a little bit more yeah. that you. No, I absolutely agree. The The beauty of digital is a peace of mind and also that, yes, you can experiment. Mm. And uh, every it's not so good that everybody has a monitor mm. now, including the back office is watching mm. now because we have Frame.io going. Mm. Um, I'm not such a fan of Frame.io. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I guess it's one for me on commercials. It's, um, they say, a racehorse designed by uh, committees, a camel. Uh, and yes. and that's and the monitor was that big change. It was yeah. suddenly yeah. you know they saw behind the magician's cloth for the first time, and they went, "Oh, is that actually what we're getting?" Yeah. And the moment we honestly had to say yes, and everyone piled in, yeah. and you had this this committee around the monitor, yeah. and that change. I think that fundamentally changed yeah. the DOP's role, yeah, because we could no longer kind of like um, protect our own artistic no, integrity. No, absolutely. I I was doing a job and. Vancouver, Toronto from Toronto, they started taking me to Vancouver and Conrad Hall was in town shooting Jennifer 8 and he was introduced to me because we were using the steam room that he usually went to after he rapped and it was amazing. He said, please come. He came on our set and we, we showed him a couple of things and he was amazed by them and he said, oh, how many setups a day are you doing? I said, 35. He said, oh my God, and he jumped up off the peewee. I had a, a 35 BL, uh, not a mm. BL, it was the, the, the new 535, mm. it was, and it had a nice eyepiece. He said, oh, I'm a Panavision guy. He said, I've never used an ARRI before. Mm. So I went to his set, and I swear, the first day that I was on the set, he never rolled before lunch. So and he I was thought, amazed that you did so many setups a day. So how many setups in comparison he, do you He think would he do two. Doing? Two setups uh, a day. It depended what the story was, yeah. but he would light happily for half a day. And yeah. get away with it. So There's that, no that's era. The difference between the culture of big films and the culture of TV. It is, but it was also him. Right. He was untouchable. Right. Uh, he was brilliant and a genius at lighting. Yeah. And he would sit on the dolly uh, for ten minutes at a time, and he would he would look, 
And then he put his forehead to the, mm. and then just leaned on it mm. and to be quiet. No one would yeah. make a peep. And you'd think he was asleep, and he was just thinking. And then he could go back and look. He'd say, Harry, can you give me a 575 right. on the floor? And yeah. he just built it up. Right. Stage light by, by light, very carefully. Yeah. yeah. And this the big scenes that I saw it was a blind institute and they had he had twelve cases. There weren't eighteens mm. in those days. We had three of them on a condor, mm. each of them. And was just pushing through full spot, everything on mm. him was full spot. He never did flood a light in his life. Really? Yeah. It was all about and and also he used mirrors Pools a lot. Of light. He used mirrors. He was totally into mirrors, loved mirrors. Right. If you look at searching for Bobby Fisher, you can see enormous amount of mirror use yeah where there's a there's a cut so aggressive that mm. there's no other way to do it right and he was just using glass so he likes surface. sort of yeah shafts of light painted Directed with light building up in yeah. layers yeah yeah no it's interesting we have a whole era now with these reflectors yeah well, i was become, gonna say we can relate to that can't we yeah of, uh, yeah the, but the he was model. the original guy there's a great yeah. shot of him with a a big piece of glass holding it Mm. by hand and mm. directing it and it's all flared out and you mm. say oh amazing because i also uh when i was at film school studied nestor Armendros, who yeah. also used a lot of reflectors in his career because uh -huh. he, he was obsessed with natural light wasn't he and yes he, he um used to get all the sparks to stand with a reflector and follow the sun yeah which is obviously quite crew heavy and yeah. this is back in a time when you say as you say the dop was was could could it, it, it definitely on his set it was like that mm. he got into trouble because after two weeks they were a week behind mm. and the studio heavies flew up and the scenes coming up were about three weeks in the blind institute mm. light out mm. there were no lights they never switched them on because everybody there was blind and the cops have to go and investigate and so they're walking down corridors at night with no lights and the big mag light, the police mag light had come out and they'd gone to a xenon bulb and we had them on our set and I'd showed them to him. Mm. And amazingly, he just lashed on immediately. Mm. And uh, when the executives were sitting around the trucks at night after the wrap, mm. when they showed up, he said, well, what are you gonna do? And he said, Harry, fire that flashlight at me. And he pulls his meter out and he says, two eight, great, mm. we're lit. Yeah. And the amazing thing is I went to the wake, uh, it was beautiful. and. The actor said what happened was he dressed up in a white hazmat suit mm. with great paddles of foam core <laughs> taped to his hands. And, and, he, and was he was walking back behind the, the Steadicam and, and screaming, hit me, hit me. <coughs> and so the, every now and again, the flashlight would come back. And that was the kickback that right. lit them. Yeah, and I think he pushed to stop. He probably yeah. he didn't really ever tell me that. I'd love to see the behind the scenes of this. Yeah. that would be so cool, wouldn't it? Amazing so he, image he was, of he was using uh, the flashlight to bounce the light back. Yeah. By, by the, well, he had a white hazmat suit yeah. on, so any time they hit him, it was good. But he also <laughs> but he was moving. He was around, using but, yeah, paddle so puppet, dancing behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Oh, it's brilliant. Did he make the time back then? For the, yeah, yeah. That's they so totally. Every night they arrived, they were ready to shoot because yeah. the only lighting were these guys with their yeah. flashlights. Yeah, yeah. And I think he put a few inkies and things yeah. from here and there. But see, um, there's a parallel between um, his enthusiasm for a new a new bit of technology and yes. how and immediately his creative yeah. mind thinking how I can apply this. Yeah. And also, you know, knowing you and and having spoken to you for a bit, I, I can see that you still have that. Well, we, we were totally enthusiastic because it was a cop show I was mm. doing. And so in the steam room, the guys came in with their flashlights. And mm. so we had them there. No, but so what I'm talking about him. is the fact that you, you're still so involved with the new technologies and you're still, yeah. 
you know, you 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 still have a very, if you don't mind me saying, a very childlike kind of yeah. wonder of everything and the way it's all moving. I, I think the inquisitive mind is what keeps you alive. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I drink te- new technology and wonder how I can use it at every opportunity. Um, I've longed for digital walls for years. Well, I was going to say this moves us on nicely to to yeah, um, yeah to your um, current um, sort of um, interests, which we're now want? we're now at a interesting time where it is possible to completely film a studio mm. with any location you want on the planet, um, but it's exceedingly expensive. So for the rest of us, it's not really a viable possibility. Mm. You're looking at tens of thousands of dollars a day to be on a, a stage, and actually a big. Eighteen million dollars Mandalorian stage is probably a hundred thousand a day. Mm. So you have a lot of people you need to both build the wall in advance and also run it. Maintain and you're saying it. that it's also there's a there's quite a long period where you have to build the backgrounds as well. So yes. there's an unreal three D. ASC did a lovely uh, exposure to about eighty members showed up, which mm. is pretty unprecedented because mm. we all wanted to know. And the basic premise was that the build, the digital build is a 15-week period mm. with uh, 3D uh, Houdini artists and so mm. on who are, who are building with Unreal Engine. So just so people understand, we're talking about uh, virtual production yes. where you use a, a video wall yep. uh, and then you have a camera that's, that's the camera's tracked. So when you move the camera, you have the parallax of the yes. background moving. So it yes. does feel like you're in a real space. And yes. this opens up the possibilities for um, for filming that we've never really had in no. the history of cinematography. It, it was, in the beginning, single camera only because mm. they hadn't figured out how to put another frustrum up. The frustrum mm. is the actual defined frame that you're shooting. Mm. And in the computer, you can make that full resolution. And the rest of the image that you don't mm. see, you can reduce the power right. of it so that the computers can keep up with displaying mm. it. Um, they're now possible to do two cameras uh, so that your alternate frames... Mm to see the other image and um, they can't keep away from it. You know, once Mm. people build a big wall, they just Mm. want to keep pouring material in. So Disney's gone down that road heavily. So let's talk about the two sort of uh, um, levels of this production. Because there's the high end level that's basically like you're saying, it's five week building in Unreal. There's a huge... Yeah, I found hundred thousand pounds a day higher of a of a what we call a, what's a, a volume, a basically volume, volume. Yeah, which yeah. is usually about one hundred and eighty degree. Uh, it's more. a horseshoe shape. Yeah, you have to get access to it because the yeah. walls are thirty feet high. Yeah, and uh, the panels themselves are the main cost. They're yeah. extreme, but high end computer system to drive the wall. Yeah, because you have a pixel resolution of around twenty thousand. Yeah, on the wraparound. Yeah, um, and they are they usually a one eighty kind of. Uh, uh, angle of view. On yes, they they curve to bring yeah. you all the way. You put your cameras where the opener of the horseshoe yeah. is, and then you you can pan around anyway. And part of the reason for that is so you can move the camera. You can pan the camera left and right. Well, usually you put it in on a seventy-five foot mm. uh, luma crane mm. uh, because you can't. Often you don't want to touch the floor. Uh, you can lay track, but mm. uh, it's just a lot easier with a with an arm. And why, why do you? Why do you want to avoid touching the floor? Well, generally the floor is where the demarcation is between the wall mm. because if you have an actor, mm. they need to walk on something. Mm. If you go to include their feet, you've got to make the match. Yeah. So that's the challenging part. So um, where, where the floor meets the video wall. Yes. Yeah. So you've got to try and hide that with yes. what, what prop elements or… Uh, in the case of this demonstration, we were in a salon 
So the floor was uh, had some kind of mat on it that looked pretty believably so you like do floors, wooden well. floors. You, have, you shadow the the the, the area. So yes, the you can. You can actually bring uh, a black shadow. So, yeah. Put it on the sky that's usually there because so they should have, also explain that uh, with this horseshoe video wall, there's there's usually a ceiling video yeah, as well. Yeah. 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 And uh, in the case of the Mandalorian, of course, he had a chrome helmet, mm -hmm. and so everything was reflected. Yeah. And, so that means uh, all, <coughs> all the lighting was also in, in uh, the, the they, actual video they, walls. The they the really light didn't the use wall. any lighting at all. So because, no additional lighting apart from the wall. Yeah, so yeah. it has that soft quality, which mm. the whole series is like that, and you kind of buy mm. into it. Occasionally they would use a backlight. Mm. Uh, in our demo, they had a couple of movers, big mm. uh, rock and roll movers, yeah. and some vortex, two yeah. vortex those four lights on one mm. side and they had a companion set yeah. 180 degrees opposite so so there's two kinds of lighting on on a uh, virtual uh cove there's the actual ambience from the led walls yeah. Yeah. and then there's additional lighting yes that can be like you said either uh, moving lights which is you know it's theatrical kind of remote you have to plan uh, this because you have to pull panels out of the mm. ceiling in order to hang a mm. bar with some lights on it so you really got to know it's pretty simple. In the case of the movers, they just put shafts into the, the saloon. Mm. So hard there were hard shafts. light coming in yeah. from the exterior windows. Yeah. So say, for example, in the background uh, wall, you'd have a sun, then you'd need to mimic yeah. that uh, yeah. effect of the sun, and you'd use movers with hard yes. lights. Yeah. The, the wall is built to lock to the parallax. Mm. And if you want to unlock that, for instance, move the sun because you don't mm. like the kind of patterns it's playing, yeah. The digital sun can be moved in real time, mm. but then you you lose your parallax, and mm. it's a little challenging to get the parallax mm. back. But Baz Luhrmann, um, not Baz Luhrmann, Baz Iodine, mm. the cinematographer that was giving this demo, he'd done mm. he won an Emmy for mm. Mandalorian, and Frazier, of course, was the mm. other guy. That, and neither of them knew what they were doing when they were first presented with this toy. Mm. It's an amazing learning experience. So learning as they, as they were filming. Absolutely. Yeah. Because so The Mandalorian was the first major movie that was shot using this technology? I, I would say it is, mm. yes, because no one had the money like yeah. Disney. It was exceedingly expensive in right. the end. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't care. They'll make their money yeah. back. And, of course, now they're pouring shows into the same volume to keep it active. Yeah. So we should talk about the uses that this technology has because there's certain yeah. uses that it's um it's uh can solve significant problems for and other uses it might not be so suited for. For example, the, the reason I think the Mandalorian was so successful yeah. for this technology is because his suit was shiny, right? So yeah. Yeah. you know, when you have a shiny helmet for example, yeah. to, to do that green screen would cause problems in post production. Huge, huge beyond. But there's certain tasks that virtual walls wouldn't be suited for um traditional green screen would be way cheaper and way more yes um you know a simpler process right yeah. but with shiny objects so for example with car photography yeah it would be another example of uh of, uh, of a, a good use for virtual production yeah. so you were talking uh about uh, earlier um before we were talking about different the different levels of production so there's that really high-end level which is yeah. the big horseshoe yeah. volumes and Lots of 3D yeah. uh, rendering done beforehand. Uh, actually, we should say at this point also that the thing about virtual production is everything has to be done before you shoot, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas traditional There's a big lead time. Yeah. Traditional production, you shoot and you build it in post, right? So, yeah. Uh, and virtual, everything has to be decided before. So when you're actually filming something on a virtual screen, yeah. all those decisions have already been made, right? Yeah. And and you've all in a way you kind of 
you paint yourself into a corner of what you're shooting. If you want to change stuff later, yeah. that becomes a lot more problematic. Doesn't well, it? they one of the big bills on Mandalorian was the fact that they changed their mind in post, right? And they had to send stuff out to get rotoscoped in India, mm. right? To the tune of around a million dollars, which an would have been better if they shot it on green screen at that point. Do you think? Yes, except for the reflection issues. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. almost insurmountable yeah. with a chrome yeah. helmet like yeah. that. Of course, yeah. And also, everybody's understanding of what they were yeah. actually looking at. Right. You know, from Star Wars on, we've done blue and green screen. Yeah. Oh, early before that, but nobody knew where the Millennium Falcon when they were in there, where the mm. fighters were coming in, what direction they'd have mm. to be talked through, and they never saw mm. anything. Yeah. So it's the most recent version that they did on a wall. They never told the cast that they were going to go to warp speed, and then when they did it, they shut their <laughs> pants. I mean, because all the walls were absolutely were the, the ultimate uh, imagineering experience at Disney yeah. theme park. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But what what's interesting about this is we did fifteen pages one day, and I think that was crazy mm. on twenty four mm. by using these rear projection playbacks and we had all the cars we did five cars and a mm. helicopter mm. and we just had them on Goljack roller we'd mm. spin them around to whatever mm. angle and we basically shot the same way and then we just maneuvered these smaller panels they were they were about 12 to 14 feet across and we had a projector course so just, for each. sorry we're talking about just shooting of 24 yeah. car sequences so, using rear, rear projection yes yeah. and, Which is and a that became the standard way. in the end yeah. all shows that had any cops in cars, sequence. any driving, yeah. they would yeah. do it that Rear way projection. because it's an extreme expense. It doesn't seem like it to go out and tow a car. Mm. We were paying fifteen dollars to $20,000 for the cops. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's the city's permission. Yeah. There's traffic issues. Yeah. You're always in real traffic. Uh, they won't sweep mm. it aside, especially if you're in New York. They just mm. they don't even care. Yeah. You just go out in traffic and drive. So if you want it to be a continuous take and you want to control it, you're back yeah, in the studio in green studio. screen. But with rear projection, you have a static camera, presumably, yes. because you, can't, you don't have the no, parallax. No, no, you, no, we used like we long lenses. We would do about a 180 in the car. Right. It was amazing what we could pull off. It was very tight. You got away with it because the background was soft, presumably. It was soft. Yeah. And uh, we would hide the screen separation on the strut, the rear strut of yeah, the car. Right. And we would spin it around to do side yeah. angles and so on. All, yeah. all things were possible in it. Yeah. But the blacks were terrible. Right. Because I had no control over them. By the yeah. time there was our lighting ambience, yeah. would wash them out. And that's yeah. also a problem for big screens. Right. So we're talking about the black levels on the screen yeah. were too light. Yeah. And when yeah. you shoot that with a digital film, it just looks wrong. Right? Yeah. So... Interesting, the VFX guy, Stargate Studios, Sam Nicholson, he, he had done, uh, when we were in New York, mm. we pretended to be in New York for a whole season. We never mm. went. Mm. And, you know, downtown LA, we put up 20 by 20 green screens, a whole line of them, and mm. he'd just replace it with Fifth Avenue or wherever. Mm. Mm. And he's now become a huge fan of smaller LED screens. Right. So he's running shows now where they have... 16 foot screens two of them and they're doing exactly the same thing mm. so they're lighting in the car uh, but you're looking out at a moving screen mm. and they of course they also have the up angle and they're mm. floating a, a big 12 by 20 griff so with a laser the, projector the up, the up angle will be yeah you, like you said a, a, yeah. a, a, a textile you bounce the projector into it and you yeah. have all the reflections looking right on the windscreen yes right? exactly yeah. and those need to be fiendishly wide uh, mm. On 24, we just ended up putting a 40 by gray mm. hanging it over mm. the top because we could kind of manipulate that and we didn't mm. see the ceiling. Mm. 
and we did all kinds of tricks. And it gets mm. heavily intensive because mm. everybody's fiddling with the light and mm. doing stuff. Move forward to now where we have LED lamps mm. that have computer control, 128 channels, and we're able to target behavior on the playback mm. to mimic, the light will mimic what you see. So mm. you can target and see yeah. and mad mapper and there's a whole series of so, programs that will do this. Yeah, so we're talking about a, a moving video file yeah. and you have a, a, a target area yeah. and as that, as, as that file uh, passes that target, yeah. as the image passes through the target, the, the contrast is mimicked and yes. the colors are mimicked. Yes. So you're literally mimicking the ambient light of yeah, the movement it, of the wall on the on the additional lighting. Yeah. If some bridges, uh, there's incidences where there are sodium lights just at mm. eye level as you're driving mm. across a bridge. Mm. So they're flashing at you in a cross shot from the driver out the window. And now you can target that light on in Mad Mapper or on, on a, an app and your light will mimic that mm. sodium light. Instantly yeah. switch to it and switch off when it's gone. It's just amazing. So we got sort of two tiers of this technology then. We got yep. the, the, the high-end tier, which is yep. the Mandalorian, the big yep. 180-degree horseshoe coves and everything. Yep. And now we got this lower-end tier, which is basically using, like you said, a laser projector, yep. potentially, yep. and some uh, app software. That and and panels and, yeah. you're buying in, but they're smaller. They're not yeah. $18 million worth of panels. Yeah. And for a series which is going to run 20 episodes or so on, you can amortize having that small wall mm. or maybe even a, a half another wall mm. uh, because it's useful sometimes to get reflections and rear screen, you know. And, yeah. and you can use big televisions too. Yeah. And, you know, 90-inch television on a rack and you just move yeah. it in. But you can also push that outside a window set and pretend mm. to be somewhere. Mm. So a lot of shows... He's doing a series, mm. I think, uh, that takes place in Alaska. Mm. They don't want to go to Alaska. They want to mm. shoot in Vancouver, on one of the big stages mm. there. But they want imagery all the time. So you send a team out, and the current way seems to be, again, small cameras. Uh, to get plates now. Yes, so this is no plate longer, shooting. This is no longer building something as a, 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 a unreal 3D world. No. This is simply getting plates, yeah. putting them onto a screen. Yeah. And, and with those plates, you can still get the parallax effects? Uh, yes, you can, because your camera's tracked mm. and you're oversizing the screen. So you see yeah. the screen go up and down to accommodate yeah. as you yeah. move the camera up and down. Yeah. But you use nine cameras again, and the chosen one at the moment is the Alpha series yeah. from Sony. So this is a, cl a cluster of cameras to gather the plates. Yeah, you split uh, them in two. One yeah. goes on a, a DJI yeah. uh, Ronin system, yeah. stabilized, fully stabilized yeah. on the front, and another one in the back. And they quite often so use a, a vehicle driving around yeah, to gather the plates. Perfectly stable. Yeah, uh, and, and it, shooting at thirty-two thousand ISO at night at eight, yeah. so everything is crisp. Yeah, so you never have an issue with that. And the cluster is so you can get a kind of three sixty view. Yes and no. It's it's every shot doesn't necessarily involve a, a big view. Mo mostly it's like a you know you're through the windscreen, you've got mm. a two shot, you have singles, mm. you have overs, mm. you have a rear view looking yeah. out in front, you yeah. know, and all of those angles are collected at once. So you're able to put up any angle. You spin the car. Right. The screens basically right. stay still, but they're on yeah. wheels now because they're yeah. not very big, so you can push them into so the, position. So the, the cars on skates. The, the cars yeah. on on a set of go jacks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you spin the car around. Yeah. The background spins around to match your background. Yeah. So yeah, I can see yeah that being very effective way of choosing and, cars. And and if yeah. you want to do, I'm pretending to be somewhere else. You just mm. roll the screen to somewhere else. The, yeah. the interesting thing about yeah. the Sony panels is they have a very 
They're more expensive, but they have perfect color temp. Mm. And uh, the the screens that people have been using up until now were made for advertising hoardings in China, and they're yeah, not really that great. Yeah. And you right. have to you have to dumb with, down uh, your lighting to match skin them. Tones, yeah, yeah, matching the skin tones yeah. in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so, another thing. A reason I think um, the Mandalorian was all set as a sci-fi environment. Yeah. at twilight, right? Yeah, you can get away suited, with anything. Yeah, yeah. suited that in, suited yeah. that technology. Yeah. Whereas when you're dealing with like you know, like a beach scene with hard yeah. sunlight, then it's not so easy to match, right? It, it, we've been doing testing in LA with a small promotional studio, the Sony, because they're mm. pushing like crazy to sell these. Um, and it's very, very effective. You, mm. you can't tell you weren't on the... Mm. Uh, Sam did a little test uh, down at the marina with two Venice 2s. Mm. So it's an 8K file across the top. Um, you well, 16K because the two of them stitched. Pardon? You have footage of this, yeah, 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 yeah. And we have the original footage shot on a Venice two, mm. and uh, it's spectacularly good. Mm. But the key lights for those were these Chinese Pro lights, mm. which are ACL, they're mm. RGB ACL, so mm. they have a six color engine, and they punch above their weight. So just to explain to our viewers, ACL is amber, cyan, cyan and lime. lime, right? So there are no white emitters yeah. in the in the cob. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what it allows you to do is expand the color to 2020. Mm. And in fact, you, we have something on the app where you can dumb down, yeah. it's in the controls to make yeah. it do Rec 709. So, so did we talk Suddenly, about the color gamuts here? Yes, so, so the, the little triangle yeah. is like this, yeah. and then it expands to 2020. And we're mm. able to, to go to 2020, yeah. but if you're interfacing with RGB lights and other things, you have yeah. to dumb down the thing. Yeah, to, yeah. So we're talking about sort of the, the intensity of the hue. Yeah. So with a 2020 gamut, you have more intense hues when yes. you go to the edges. With a yes, yes. it's less intense. Yellow is a particular yeah. challenge for an RGB light. Yeah. WW, you can't yeah. get a yellow. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the cyans and so on down there too, not yeah. so often used, but a yellow is very often yeah. something you want. Late afternoon yeah. sunlight is yeah. a classic example. Yeah. So this allows you to get um, the, the uh, RGB... Uh, uh, cyan, well, sorry, what's it? Cyan, uh, amber, cyan, and lime. Amber, cyan, lime, yeah. yeah. Allows you to get more saturated colors. Yes, uh, and colors that the, you can't achieve with yeah. an RGB light. Right. They right. just won't go there. Yeah. And also, they're much dimmer when they try. Mm. Whereas with the six color engine, you keep your intensity all the way yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because the Kina Flow lighting, they're. they're um, Freed has been working on the skin. So his, his yes. big thing is the skin tones again. Yes, and matching it to the chipset of the camera, the which is the, the ultimate. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, yeah, which is a big issue. I mean, as we're, we're basically talking about the kind of color chaos in LED yeah. technology, aren't we? Yeah. Because every, every LED chip has a certain age. Yeah. You can't get light-to-light uh, 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 light to, you know, like sky panels, for example. You can't get the, the lights to kind of look the same over different lighting fixtures no. and certainly different ages they, they start drifting as well and what I think what Kino Flow's tried to do is to uh, and I think succeeded in doing is having an ecosystem that everything's yeah. as it should be um, well even in his tubes he was mm. a phosphor maven mm. he, he created phosphors that did all the matching for you mm. and uh, that was his secret yeah so and he spent what 30 years understanding yeah. colour science so he's yeah. got yeah. a bit of a jump on yeah. competition yeah. But what they don't have at the moment is a hard light. So the pro mm. light guys, we're happily, mm. you know, pushing this yeah. this yeah. hard light because uh, I miss not having color. Once you get yeah. a hard light in color, it's very yeah. exciting because yeah. you have yeah, the yeah. ability to stick shafts in places and yeah. so on. 
And they're collaborating with uh, Dado as well, aren't they? Yeah. Doing, uh, D- Dado's, Dado's doing, doing the lenses for yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. Not all of them. We have some of our own, but mm. uh, it's a nice collaboration. And yeah. particularly because uh, we've made the color engine for a small Neo, uh, mm. an 85 watt mm. uh, color head. It's the same technology as in the other three lamps mm. that we have. Because we do have a 675 now, which is about to come out. Mm. And the, yeah. the little 85 water, which everyone will want in their kit because it's a dado kit, mm. like a, mm. a D7, uh, essentially. And, but it's full color and it takes all the accessories. So. The other thing to talk about is you mentioned yellow is quite a hard color to get. Yeah. Um, another color that uh, I believe is quite tough is the sodium. Yes. Uh, so when you were before, when you're doing 24 shows like 24, how did you uh, get yes. a, around that? We were shooting in the streets in the valley all the time and it was a sodium world. And mm. we'd often, I just say often, but sometimes we'd be in a helicopter, handheld shooting, not, not a rig, chasing a car, and they'd be lit with, because in the beginning, I, I used to put blondes up and switch off all the streetlights in mm. Toronto. I mm. didn't know any better. Mm. But we just had to embrace the sodium. It was so prevalent, and mm. I loved the way it, it made the city feel. Yeah. But we couldn't replicate it with our own gels. The big struggle, either HMI or tungsten, to gel a light, either Lee, uh, neither of them did, it, or Roscoe did a very good job of creating gels that match. So we ended up buying sodium lights, and they were big, heavy things, and we would bolt them to the wall of a building and and have, you know, we could place them wherever we wanted to help us, um, enable us to shoot a space, mm. basically. And Kiva was very good about it. He, he never was one to mm. think I should need to be carefully lit. Yeah. No, that's a big issue in Hollywood where the women in the show tend to want a, a bag light, a very nice softy yeah. poked right above their face. And So was the deal in 24 with the women that um, that might not be the way they, it was They were treated? on their own. In fact, um, Dear Soul, she's just won an Emmy for a show mm. uh, in Hollywood now, but she burst into tears when I started talking to her about because she came to me and said, you know, I'm used to having my lights at the right mm. place. And I, we've all seen those shots of divas yeah. Yeah. complaining, what's that light doing there? Yeah. Why is that lamp there? And it has happened to me a few times. But the producer and I got together with her and, and she just had to cry. It's, look, I, I will protect you as much as I can. But mm. the way in the style we're shooting this, I can't do special lighting one camera mm. Uh, and killed you and but mm. nowadays i think it's a little easier because people love soft lights so much that mm. um, you can grace a set mm. and then in post you get into resolve mm. you can start putting a mask on the side of the face right. and you can pull you can, it down yeah. and you just add some contrast mm. and you can get that back mm. in post mm. uh you know uh, chivo is a master mm. of that yeah so let's talk a little bit about how uh your lighting styles and the technology has changed over your career. Because one yeah. thing to say about your career, which I was really, when I was doing a bit of research, I couldn't believe that you pretty much shot every genre of movie possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, even I was thinking, yeah. oh, you might have not done a Western, then I found a Western, you know, you, might, <laughs> you know, it's a horror Western fantasy yeah. um, period. I mean, every possible style yeah. of production you have had experience at. So yeah. per- firstly, could we talk on, uh, talk on that a little bit? What, do you have a favorite genre? Is a, you know, I I don't think, I don't think I do really. Uh, I I like found light. Mm. Uh, I believe that it's possible now to go to a set if you if you have patience and you're not being pressured 
to move on. <laughs> and you take a look and you, you can get time studies done for you. Mm. You know, you can do them yourself. But if usually someone would do a time study to tell you during the night how did the city behave, what, what lights came on, which didn't. And also during the day, uh, you know, you take out your little app on the phone and you say, well, now where's the sun going to be in two weeks? And I'd love to be here then. But that all goes out the window because no first AD will let you. Sometimes you can beg and borrow and they'll allow you to. But it's usually only by accident you get the sun in the right place at the right time. Um, I did a pirate movie <laughs> in the Adriatic and we would go to sea. And you had it was wind in the sails because it was a three thousand year old pirate ship, mm. and to get the wind and not see the land and the sun in the right place was virtually impossible. Oh, yeah. You got two out of three. So did you, did you? Was it a kind of um, uh, a process of emotionally having to sort of let that go? Kind oh, of, you, yeah. You, you absolutely have to. You kill yeah. yourself with anxiety. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that it's not that your... you don't struggle and that you don't have a plan, but plan B more often mm. than not is what happens. And do you find you get happy accidents when you let that process oh, yeah. go a bit? Yeah. Yes. Some of the best moments on film have always been accidental and mm. random and you could never have planned it and, mm. you know, rainbows come out at the mm. right time and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, please can we shoot? You know, it's like... So talk us through a little bit what, what how you are on set because I, I, I mean, I... Uh, I've always operated and sometimes I use very rarely do I use operators but what yeah. I find when I use an operator is I feel a little bit like a you know um, you've lost control I've lost yeah and, yeah. and certainly with the director because I'm not in the conversation with the director and the director will start splitting their energy between me yes. and the operator yes. and then by the end of the shoot they're just 100% on the operator and I'm just sort of floating around in the background I, how do I, you find that well I I went through film school here and so I was aware of the lighting cameraman approach in London and so in Canada, in the very beginning, once I got an operator, I said, okay, you work with the director and I'll light. We'll discuss, we'll have a consultation because I don't want you screwing me into a corner mm. that I can't get out of. So I'm very much a part of that. And of course, in prep, you have your notes and you liaise with the director. But I think it's, it's wonderful to be able to let that go. Mm. But you have to c have confidence in your operator. And I had had amazing mm. operators over the years who I couldn't have looked as good without them mm. do you as the operator brought in at the prep stage to discuss was is that because that's really the cinematographer's responsibility isn't it, it to design the look of the very the rarely will they pay for an operator to come yeah so, you, so you've gone through the prep with the director and yep. you've had all these conversations yep. about the look yep. so that's a good that's a good start because yes you, of course no, i have a closer relationship with the gaffer and the grip because we're are we going to put i need light coming through these windows i'm saying 9Ks, and when I get there, they put Arimaxes up, mm. and there's nine of them, and they're mm. 40 feet up on Sisyllus. And I'm like, mm. I didn't ask for that, but they, they cathedral windows, and they totally know what they're doing, yeah. and I'm happy to have them do. Yeah. One of the great things about, uh, I had a movie that took place in New York, and it was the beginning of uh, light panels, mm. not light panels, um, sky, Ari, panels. sky panels. And they were suspicious of them. And they said, we're not using sky panels on this movie. I said, well, how come? Everybody's using them. They said, no, Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, we are not going to give them bad light. Mm. And I'd seen evidence of some cameras who would take you down a dark road and millions were spent in post on a lot of big movies because color science wasn't tracking well with what they, uh, the lighting was doing. And, and there was... Uh, 
patches of yeah, it's missing spare. information yeah. that's very hard yeah, to get we back. We won't right. go and do that. Yeah. But but there was a period when a lot of money was spent trying to fix things mm. like that. So they gave me reefer lights. They said mm. there's these New York lights and they have these big long tubes. Yeah. Very of, of tungsten. Right? Yeah. Yeah, they drove us crazy and they would sing occasionally. Mm. But every time, oh, and we had kinos. We used mm. kinos, and they were the phosphor kind at that mm. point. We didn't have mm. the LED versions. Yeah. So I was blessed with having very accurate color, and mm. I was very, very grateful when we mm. got to post, and I'm looking at a mm. giant screen in, in the color suite, mm. and, and it just looks spectacular, yeah. and we never had any issues. What's it like to work with Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman? They're, they had worked on a lot of movies together, mm. so there was an unspoken kind of mm. camaraderie. And Alan Arkin was was uh, more challenging because he wanted to change his lines all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. But they would tell him off every mm. now and again. <laughs> it was, but, I remember uh, him and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Have yeah. you seen that film? Yeah. Yeah. They would come on set in the, when they were ready for them, and they would never leave. Mm. They just sat quietly in a chair. You know, people would mm. normally always, I'm used to certainly younger actors mm. disappearing to their trailer and mm. having people bring them food and, mm. you know, they're off in another world. Mm. Or Tom Cruise walking through his blackout tent mm. all the way to a stage from a trailer, you know, on the Panavision, on that's, the that's Paramount a, lot. That, that's a true story. It really it? happens, yeah. yeah. I, we, we couldn't believe. We, we had to cross through this thing and go around it. Yeah. It was several hundred yards long of 20-foot of tall blackouts. Right. So that he was never seen coming from his trailer. Right. Right. To the set. Yeah. 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 I don't think he's quite like that now. Yeah. But I, I did go to um, the Samurai movie in New Zealand. Mm. It was shot in my hometown. Mm. And I had an operator and the special effects guy was from 24. Mm. And uh, I was on the set for two days. And then towards the end of the second day, when I came back from lunch, they said, no, sorry, Tom, mm. You've looked at Tom, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go. I was beside yeah. the camera. Yeah. We we're in the bush, and he was being picked mm. up and put on a horse mm. by uh, Mafuni, mm. and um, that was it. Gone. Mm. <laughs> you know. How did you find the um, the the um, shift from TV to film to to? Um, I was lucky theatrical. in that it was it was technically a low budget big movie. Several of my movies have been like that, where there was barely enough money to for the film and stock and processing so it was all tv style speed and efficiency mm. it was peewees it wasn't anything mm. bigger you know it was mm. everything was scaled down slightly mm. um so that was helpful because uh, I, it was my wire style mm. of working mm. and i knew that on the new york picture i was hired for that every time we had a crane the end of the day it disappeared mm. and we didn't get it again mm. whereas on television we, you carry everything because you never know what you're going to do it can change on the dime. Mm. So if we had a crane, we carried it all the time, and we carried 18Ks and everything. But that eventually, when everything got faster, cameras got faster, we started downsizing. So we didn't carry 18s anymore, and we mm. got rid of the 40-foot truck. So we're down to a 10-ton, mm. and the biggest light was a 9K. And then mm. gradually everything came down in size. We had an experience on Shameless, where the mm. first season we were shooting on the Red One, and it had quite a slow ISO, it was around mm. 200. Mm. And they had 20 case coming through the windows of all these sets. And when the Alexa came out and I said, I want the Alexa, they said, oh, you can't afford that. Because we had two cameras the whole time. Mm. And actually I think we had three because we, no, we never did Steadicam, so there mm. was only two. Uh, and I said, well, let's bring the, the Alexa in and put it on the stage 
and let's see what happens. If we switch off the mm. 20Ks, what can we get away with? Mm. And in fact, we, we went down to a 5K, and all the money that I saved by giving back the 20Ks uh, paid for the Alexa. Paid, paid yeah. for the Alexa. Yeah, so, yeah. And they never looked back. They yeah. were on Alexa for 10 years. Yeah. And how did you uh, embrace the kind of difference in aesthetics as well of using smaller lights rather than bigger lights? I mean, it played into my documentary experience. Yeah. I used to have yeah. a set of Lowell lights and mm. totas and all these kind of things. They were a bit ugly in those mm. days. You had to be careful with them. Mm. Um, lots of spun glass and not putting them up if you didn't have to, mm. really using. So now you, you've you got 800 base, and mm. basically we're looking at 3200 of the new version of cameras, the new Arri and the, and the mm. new Venice mm. will both go to there. Um, people are actually shooting at that. Mm. So what became a, a sky panel can now be in a stereo tube. Right, yeah. And so suddenly yeah. you have a whole other level. You're seeing into the dark differently. Yeah. And in post, you can do a lot more. Um, and Chivo absolutely showed us how to do that uh, with that lovely movie in, in the theater where they were 360s all oh, the yeah, time. Yeah, and, um, Birdman. Birdman. Yeah. And he spent, you know, yeah, six months in post. Everything was practical, right? All the yeah, lights were practical. absolutely. So the camera and, could go anywhere. And so, it was relatively yeah. flat because it was the nature of it. Mm. But whereas I couldn't do it in 24, and I didn't mm. know that you could do mm. that, and we didn't have the tech either. Mm. But now that everybody with a laptop can get Resolve mm. and have a neural engine and do the most amazing tracking mm. just with a new, you know, 16-inch Mac, it's just absolutely astounding. So we're talking about having something lit flat yeah. and then later on putting contrast into the face yes. with Resolve. absolutely. Right. And, so and doing that in real time, in making post. a change. Yeah. As people move through the frame, you can you can bring it up and take it down. Right. So you can have dynamics absolutely on it as they're Absolutely have moving. dynamics on yeah. it. Yeah. Because when you're doing 360s, there's no room for negative fill. Mm. And negative fill is your friend. Yeah. If right. you're on a single camera yeah. deal, if you don't have negative fill, you're not lighting. Mm. And so, yes, mm. we, we all know where the key is, but to mm. know how to hide the fill and to control right. the contrast is, is yeah. the magic yeah. button that, that is important yeah. for modern cinematography. Right. That's, At the I'm, moment you do a 180, you say, oh, where did my negative fill go? Yeah. I, I'm screwed. Yeah, that's the first thing I do when I walk into a space yeah. is think where I'm putting the blacks up. Yeah, and then then you see what you get, and then you add. Uh, my process is getting the ambience down yes. to the shape I like, yes. and then putting the accents in where I feel they're necessary. Right? Yes. Whereas the traditional way of lighting was having a big old light for a window, yeah, and then building and then sort of shaping it from there, right? Yeah. So it's a completely different philosophy in a way. Totally. Yeah. And I think with this new Arri thirty-five with seventeen stops at dynamic range, I had a chat with uh, right. Eric Messerschmidt. And talking to him about using that camera, he shot one of the short films. And uh, we all went to the DGA, and they have a really good laser projector. Mm. And they were screening. There was two young kids in a house. You can find it online. And it's very lovely. And the director was a, was a wonderful guy. This, this 360, a, no lights. This is the, um, the view outside the window. Yes. And then they're, con they're silhouetted inside. Yes. This is the, yes. the film of the super, the Ari Yeah. And, yeah. and to give you an indication of how yeah. much light flows around when you have a naturally lit room, he had to cover everything outside the frame with black, black. duvetine. Yeah. The best quality. And he said, the only thing I put in there was a tiny little piece of white deed board that I yeah, held in my hand a tiny yeah. hit in the eyes yeah. but he said if I didn't I took that away they were silhouettes right. but he had to put all this black in to achieve yeah. that but at the same time he's seeing 
sunny sky, blue sky, clouds, everything yeah. is outside the window is perfect. Yeah. And so I can't wait to get my hands on that camera. Yeah. Yeah. They're just very hard to get hold of now. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. struggling to build them. That's right. Yeah. It's quite a demand, I hear. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I think that's probably the future. The The Venice 2 has got a similar mm. kind of quality. I don't think it has the same dynamic range. Mm. Um, Do you think the Venice uh, feels a bit more digital and the Ari feels a bit more filmy? I, I, think, I think it's about the glass after mm. that. Right. And of course, you know, that segues into old glass. Yeah. Um, the best imagery that I've ever shot was with old 30-year-old Panavision anamorphics. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and then, of course, we can go down the, the FD route yeah, right. with, with the uh, radioactive glass yeah. elements yeah. and what they do mm. to the image. And, mm. um, I, I do think, because I grew up with old Nikons and Canons from the beginning when I was a you know, teenager shooting mm. with those cameras as stills mm. lenses, and now we find that we can have them rehoused and made useful mm. so that a focus puller can actually work mm. with them. Is it something uh, that's nice about kind of, it's like old bottle, new wine, kind of combining old technology with new technology? Yeah. It's something very, you know, we're both the analog digital generation. Yeah. Half our careers are spent analog and now digital. Well, the, the absolute need appeared when we were obliged by Netflix to go to 4K if we mm. wanted to sell our product. And I always thought that the 2.8K out of an Alexa Super 35 was, when it was raw, recorded raw, uh, is un, unbeatable. Mm. But going to 4K just gave you all that much more imagery. And, and there were cause catastrophic moments in, with the girls and the women over makeup and hair yeah. and wardrobe all issues. The of the skin being seen you, couldn't get, yeah. you couldn't get away with the stuff that you get away with in, mm. normally. Um, and 4K took you into that whole new realm. And modern lenses they keep thrusting on us are all designed by computer, and they're mm. basically perfect. Mm. I love the fact that Ari made a set of anamorphics mm. that was so good you couldn't tell it's them from the spherical. You can tell the, the anamorphic, yeah, yeah, because all the characters have been character uh, designed been out, of out of them. Yeah, and they went crazy and spent a lot of money trying to yeah. put filters on one end yeah. and filters on the yeah. other end. And uh, yeah. you know, I'm sure they have their use, and people use yeah. them. But I much prefer the old glass yeah. uh, in anamorphic. Yeah. In anamorphic over spherical at any yeah. time. It's the flaws that are the character. That's yeah. what people, you know. Absolutely. I mean, I have this sort of theory whereby, that's you know, I quite like cook glass and like yeah. a glass. And my theory yeah. is when you, because cook are the only manufacturer that just, uh, just manufacture motion picture glass. They don't manufacture stills glass. Yes. So uh, because of that, they can be quite unique in their approach. Yeah. And I think that I, the way an eye scans a still image you look at you're looking from edge to edge, so therefore, the the drive in having a flat kind of plane of everything sharp and everything rendered perfectly works. No for, fall off works for stills. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. Fall, works for stills. It makes yeah. sense for stills because you scan yeah. the image. But yeah. when it comes to motion picture, we go we travel through an image, right? And we yeah. it's more center weighted, and we have this whole foveal vision uh, kind of um, uh, perception of the world anyway. Yeah, which would mean that having a center sharp and fall off would make sense for us emotionally. Yeah, and that's the way Cook designed their glass, and I think that's why why they have that kind of dimensional quality. They have that yes. kind of three dimensional quality, uh, and you, you know the edges aren't the edges are vignetting the colors. I I bought a set of classics. It was my first mm. serious glass, and we didn't have them all in the beginning, and so we were supplementing them. But I found that the a couple of them had curvature fields that I couldn't deal with and I, I ended up selling them but 
they become very successful mm. because they're housed in the right. Uh, uh, when you say classics, uh, they're cook classics. Yeah, they're yeah. the cook classics. Cook pan- speed pancros, is it? They they are re envisioned speed pancros right. in a modern housing. Oh, right. And they so, yeah. read out. Yeah. You can see your stop and everything electronically. Yeah. Right. Those were replicated the old speed pancros, which mm. frankly. Some of the greatest movies ever shot were shot so with them. Speak, have you seen their history reel? No, no. Uh, they cook have a history reel. They call it the Cook Look history reel. Yeah, and it's pretty much every film you remember growing up with. Yes. <laughs> like, that's the best. That's the best showreel I've ever seen. For yeah, events. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. it's amazing. But it's fun to go to the factory there and see the old belt-driven. They still have machines. traditional machinery, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, they haven't yeah, changed yeah. anything. No. So I mean, well, they do. They do have some modern uh, componentry. Mm. Um, but it's interesting, by contrast, Sigma make, uh, I played with some of their lenses recently, and they're all done, they actually mold them. Uh, they don't polish them, and their machinery is at such a point. And interestingly, at Ari in the factory, which yeah. I visited last week, the lays in the basement are all Japanese, they're not German. Right. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. What, what they're more modern lathes? Or? Yeah, you know, five-axis machining yeah. the parts for yeah. the body and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, that kind of would, they didn't make lenses in that factory, but obviously yeah. they're made by the same kinds of yeah. t- caliber of machines yeah. with tolerances and the millionths yeah, yeah. of a centimeter and are crazy. It's like everything in the world now, there's so few manufacturers of certain, everything's got so um, uh, specialist now. Yeah. You have like one manufacturer of LED chips in the world or two, you know, Two no, it's crazy dangerous. Thing. We're in deep yeah. trouble now yeah. because half the stuff you want, you can't buy because there's a supply chain issue. Yeah, and Ari's only making only a small number of cameras right. because they're having yeah. terrible trouble getting components. Yeah. So yeah. one of the, I mean, you know, just talking about the Ari waiting list for the thirty-five, and also the fact that glass prices are going up so much. Yeah. Supply and demand. Everyone is shooting content now. When you think about what the amount of cameras that Ari would sell to the film industry yeah. 20 years ago compared to what they're selling to the whole of um, the kind yeah. of content industry yeah. now, it's pretty mind-boggling, I would well, imagine. I think Netflix has done an amazing job in adopting countries, selling the American product, but then encouraging the local. And suddenly you find Squid Game and so on, stuff yeah. coming out yeah, that's yeah. completely yeah. in a foreign language with subtitles, yeah. and it yeah. wins Emmys and so yeah. on, you know. Um, and you know, there's all of Indonesia, there's India, you know, we've always had Bollywood, mm. but now increasingly there's Bollywood product coming out on Netflix. Right. Or there's French yeah. product. You were saying earlier about the China, the China film school. Oh yeah. The Shanghai film school. Yeah. No, a good friend of mine is teaching at the Shanghai film school. There's 2,500 students and they have five or six giant stages. They have mm. dubbing theater. Mm. They have all the equipment. They have about a hundred minis, mm. you know, it's mm. just crazy. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things with set notes is what we try and do, trying to kind of create a kind of a sort of mentorship program again yeah. and try and educate people. Because what I've realized, certainly here in the UK, is you have a, the kind of culture of cinema, uh, which is, you know, fundamentally you work your way up through the, you know, the, the camera department. It was kind of like a mentor, yeah. a mentor sort yeah. of um, program. Uh, and then, uh, and now you have the videographer world, which people basically... You know, less and less people going to film school. Film yeah. school so expensive now. Yeah. So people basically buy a bit of equipment and, and, and get, go on get, YouTube. Yeah, get, go on to YouTube, learn <laughs> yeah. what they need to. And, but with that, we've lost a little bit of the craft and that mm. that kind of apprenticeship model. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to talk to you about um, 
a little bit about what you hold dear about the craft, what you would say the craft is in cinematography and what, what the big lessons you've learned over the years, any sort of, sort of tips you might have for the younger filmmakers? I, I think I came in at a time when discipline was still pretty important and you know the, the gaffer had a best boy and God forbid that this or that would happen. Mm. Uh, the electrics all kind so of... So a real strict hierarchy of yes, the set. Yes, before... Before phones came on sets, mm. <laughs> people would sit quietly yeah. and observe and mm. watch their their gaffer and mm. so on to see if there was an indication that they needed to do something. Mm. Everybody, of course, has radios, but radios were off mm. during when you're rolling. But now I find so many people are on their phones when they stood down while we were rolling. And there's a certain disrespect about that that, mm. that is kind of tonally change things mm. if uh, you know we never had phones on set on 24 but god forbid if Kiefer looked out of his corner of his eye and saw someone in a corner playing mm. a game on a, a mm. phone it would the shit would have hit the fan yeah because it does it does alter the the set mm. spirit you know yeah. and it there's nothing better than having a team of people whom you intimately trust with the creative input they're mm. giving because film is absolutely a team industry. Mm. You can't make a film by mm. yourself. I mean, you kind of can, but it, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be able to mm. do that. Mm. Every story has its own requirements. And once you start spending money, there's lots of other people that need to be involved and they will help you tremendously. Production designer, for, for instance, extraordinarily valuable relationship for a cinematographer to, to understand the needs of the tone and discuss and evaluate the kind of approach that you want to making the world which we would then photograph. We would light it, but it helps tremendously to have input in colors and tone and yeah. how everything is designed. What kind of prep time would you have on your uh, on most of your... Uh, on the, the hard television stuff, none at all. Mm. But you were lucky, if you were lucky, you worked with someone who, who you... And you worked with before. You, you trusted you, yeah. and you just, you relaxed and there wasn't, they would come to you every now and again mm. if there was a problem. Would you get recommended uh, jobs through a, uh, a set uh, designer? Would, would, would you, or would, I, would you recommend I don't know that? that that ever happened, but I was happy to recommend the production designer, you know, after I'd worked with them. And they, they did show up often, and a good one in Toronto yeah. in the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, an ex-architect who stumbled onto the business and, you know, got hooked. <laughs> right. And he was wonderful. Mm. There's still a lot of construction necessary. Mm. Um, we would spend, on 24, we spend a million dollars every season just on a standing set, mm. which was CTU in that case. What's CTU? CTU was the central... Um, counterterrorism unit right uh which was the headquarters surprisingly when we went to washington we did shoot there for a couple of weeks we got invited to cia mm. headquarters mm. and we were shown it was a love fest mm. we were shown their control room for the mm. cia's uh maintenance of terrorism you'd think that would be out of bounds wouldn't it you? was it, yeah. it, they were happy to show us mm. and yes the screens had innocuous material mm. and they were surrounded by giant screens and projector mm. systems there were about 15 people working at mm. triple monitors mm. there was a controller and off to the one side was the cia mm. and and then the other side were the other secret mm. service agencies they all had access to the control room mm. and then we they took us to a boardroom and all the monitors came up out of the table the table opened like a clamshell mm. and then they said the, the 
Disney's Imagineering guys had designed mm. it for them. Mm. But we were suspicious. We thought, you know, a lot of this looks a little bit like CTU. And we've right. been going for a few years by then too. So Right. So the so production designer had some kind of insight into... He, he had a good feeling. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we really kind of anticipated the large mm. screen playback and mm. real-time yeah. uh, analysis of what's going yeah. on. But you can yeah. go back to The Bomb. Mm. Uh, what's that wonderful film? God, black and white in the big control room. Um, oh, you mean uh, with, Stanley Kubrick's film? Yeah. Uh, uh, Doctor Strangelove. Yes, Doctor yeah. Strangelove. Yeah. You know, I think uh, people at, in the industry, given enough freedom, can envisage the most extraordinary mm. uh, structures yeah. that stand the test yeah. of time. Do you do you prefer lighting sets or do you like to start with reality uh, and look at you should shooting locations? Lighting sets is... Uh, the first thing is now it, it's all changed because we have LEDs. Mm. I did a series uh, called The Last Ship, and I was brought on after they'd started, and they had put a 1,000 uh, quasar tubes into the set to light the backing. Mm. And I thought, oh, this is interesting, you know, because we at that point we still couldn't dim kinos. Mm. And uh, it was day. It was a gray sea, and we they'd built a full-scale bridge of an Ali Burke-class destroyer where everything was absolutely real because we went to the Ali Burke down in Pasadena, down in uh, San Pedro, and we would get on the ship and we'd be on the bridge and you couldn't tell which was which. But outside ours, we had a backing. It was just a painted backing mm. of a seascape. But when we went to night, we just took the lamps down to 1% and suddenly it was night mm. and we switched off the tungsten and let the, the uh, other color yeah, play wonderful more. Control. Yeah, it was yeah. like, Oh my God, how yeah. amazing is this? Yeah. Yeah. Fully justified the expense. Mm. And the idea that you have lights now that will go from 100% to 1% mm. and still have color accuracy, more or less, mm. Uh, mm. is is mind-changing. Yeah. And I none of those were on 24 when I was lighting. Mm. Modern sets, I haven't had sets that big. Oh, we did do one. I did a pickup shoot for a guy, and we were actually using these... Um, Kinoflows, the mm. new ones, mm. the freestyles. Yeah, freestyles, yeah. Yeah, mm. and I, they were very satisfying. It was mm. nice to be able to shoot the ends of them and not see mm. a controller. What I love about it's, so. a, it's a controller, the egg crate, uh, the, uh, the honeycomb control. Yes. And you can strip them down and you can, you know, it's, yeah. it's just a very... Well, we, we used for the longest time, we used small heads uh, with a, um, a Shamira 2x3 mm. uh, and everything had honeycombs on it well this is tungsten lights or this, this is um they they were tungsten yeah. this was on shameless yeah and we lit all of that with these uh, small boxes mm. uh with a very rigid honeycomb on mm. quite deep mm. so we control really but it was always it. a soft light yeah 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 um we we put pars through the window 1k mm. pars and the ended up that's all we brought in a sunlight mm. and of course when you get to a higher one, iso 1k pars yeah like, rock and roll par Kapar 64, oh, open globe, narrow beam one. The um, uh, Parkans? Yeah. All oh, right. 1K Parkans through yeah, windows? Yeah, yeah, This is what? This is locational? Studio. No, this was on studio oh, set. I was going to say, right. They yeah, were pushing yeah. through our windows. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can get away with those now. Well, as sunlight uh, coming through As windows. sunlight. Of course, you want it to be blue, so you're going to lose quite a bit if you put a you know, CTB yeah. on it. Yeah. Uh, but... Because we're now making that leap to 3,200 ISO, mm. 3,400, 5,000, um, 
these lights become powerful mm. lights. Yeah, and they're cheap to hire as well. They're Super very cheap. cheap to hire. It's, I, in fact, that is my advice for anyone wanting to start on lighting would be to buy an old rock and roll par. Yeah, and get a couple of like the wide yeah. beam and the narrow yeah. beam and yeah. the fire starter. The fire yeah. starter is the most amazing light. What's the fire starter? The fire starter is a twelve hundred. Yeah, it was. It, they're they're built for aircraft landing lights. Right, and they have maybe about a seven degree or maybe and this less. And a park can, so it's a And you sit it in a park can. You can yeah. either get them open without the yeah. actual can. Yeah, the rock and roll ones always have a can. Fire starter. They're cheaper, yeah. and they make. Fifty you, bucks you, for that. Do you use source falls as well? Yeah, I, I used to love that. For for me, when I first started, yeah. my poor man's version of Lightstream, the Dado yes, system, yes. was source falls into bits of silver. That yes, I find. yes, yes. Um, we we always carried them, and in fact, I I well remember the first time I saw that five degree lens, mm. this giant piece of plastic glass yeah. Fresnel, and that was very very useful, mm. very useful. You could shape it. I like the idea of we ended up with the lusters because they had a color head in them. And so if luster was was a, a color head that had the source for attachment. Uh, attachment. Yeah. yeah. And if you were in a set and you wanted a little bit of a kick on someone's hair yeah. and you were late to the party, you suddenly yeah. said, oh, my God, give me a luster here, yeah. shape it, narrow yeah, strip. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then let's just put a little bit of blue in it or, yeah. or warm it up or, you know, it was like. So you seem to like like a similar way I – uh, attempt to is uh, oh yeah is, I mean when I saw your your page on Instagram I thought oh my god this is unbelievable well, so wonderful well, it's a similar kind of philosophy of, of mm. basically starting because you started with documentary backgrounds so you yeah. start with the reality yeah you shape the reality by putting negative in and yeah. then you find little little thin paintbrushes of light to yeah. to accent the points you're interested yeah. in yeah um, which you know I, I've always you know I could. Yeah, speaking of these um, parkans and source force and stuff, yeah. that's a yeah. that's a very effective way of doing it. So, as you're saying, advice to young filmmakers would be get yourself some of these cheaper tungsten lights, yeah, uh, and a load of black, I guess. Well, if you if you go into a room with a, a fire starter and just bounce it off objects in the room, you've got to be careful because you mm. can burn them. <laughs> it's an aggressive light, yeah. But you will see everything that that room will give you just right. by panning it around. Right. That's and a, then if you want to control it, you can put it into beadboard yeah. or you can put it, you know, and then, yeah. yeah no, That's a beautiful uh, pro, um, uh, experiment, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the yeah. flow of light in a room. Because yeah. light comes through the window, say, yeah. for example, yeah. and it bounces around the room. Yeah. And you're using a light to, 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 to enhance that process. Yeah. Which is what a great cinematographer does, tries to yeah. do, is to see what is actually naturally occurring and then to enhance it for dramatic effect. Right? Yeah. That's, that's the role, in a way. The, the, the light stream system gives you the ability to easily and relatively easily put a small uh, half meter size bounce into the corner of a room and then mm. you just shape a light and hit it and control mm. it and it doesn't overspill mm. and you can achieve a lot of yeah. character in a space pretty yeah. easily and cheaply now. It's this fine paintbrushes so it's a very it's having a very sensitive camera yeah and these fine paintbrushes of light that allow us to do yeah. this kind of and you, of, your biggest drawback is that you inevitably will force to shoot in a room that's got white walls right and the yeah. first question you ask is can we afford to paint this yeah and it's not about the painting it's repainting it back to what the right the building you're in you know the house whatever will they let you yeah but you usually 50 percent of the time you want you lost that battle and, and if you can like, paint it do you go for a mid-gray normally is that kind of uh, it, it, yes you, you would 
you would want to go to something that give you some control mm -hmm. over the mm -hmm. spill and the bounce because yeah. you no know, matter what, especially with kinos and so on, even with grids, mm -hmm. you're still going to have a lot of spurious light mm -hmm. floating around. The ceiling was the, be the worst thing. Mm. How do you control yeah. the ceiling? Because do, do you have any tips on that? I, I, well, you can you can duvetine's too heavy to stitch up there. I I no. don't really. Uh, it, it really is huge if you can get a space which you can paint, mm. do whatever you want yeah. to. Yeah. Obviously, on a stage you can leave that you can leave it open, mm. and they'll put uh, duvetine around the sides so that, n that nothing bleeds in. Mm. But of course, the stage is black above, so you get away with much more control. Yeah. Than being in an, an eight and a half foot ceiling drives you crazy. Yeah. There's not a lot you can do. I was trying to think of a way of um, devising a rig whereby you could have a, a C stand and these kind of spring arms that come out and push against the ceiling. Yeah. And you could put black, uh, you know, you could have like a kind of, like a kind of fly, like a fly swatter type thing. So you have to sort of, yeah. And I was going through many iterations of this and I still haven't come up with something that's practical. Or that well, speaking of that, the, the tool that really helped us tremendously was the, the Max, Matthew's Max Arm. I don't know oh, whether you've used that. I love the Max Arm. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. tool. And we would, we would put a piece of 20 foot pipe on the end of it and sling a kino on it. So we could get it out almost 30 feet. You put pipe on the end of the Max Arm? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I you just I need more counterweight, right? Do you, did you ever use um, uh, Sun? What are they called? Uh, Two hundred thousand watt. They've got a big one. I did use that one time. That was extraordinary. Oh, soft suns. Soft suns. Yeah. But they made a small three thousand watt soft sun right. that we could get out almost thirty feet. And this is on the Max arm. Yeah. Right. The Max Menace, isn't it? The Max, the Max Menace. Uh, Matthew's arm. Max Menace. They got an Oscar for it, you know, yeah, they, and yeah. deservedly so. Yeah, because the geometry is completely unique, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. But by adding the pipe with a lighter head, yeah. you could achieve. So a it's lot almost of like depth. having a portable studio, I think, because yeah. you can get a heavy light completely over the top of the middle of a set. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go into a studio, I try and avoid using a rigger and yeah. I try and do most things from the floor. So yes. when I saw this light, I was thinking, well, you don't even need a studio now. No, no, or no. And you, grid. Can, you can move it, swing it, yeah. rotate it just yeah. to, as it takes shape. You can yeah. modify it. Yeah. But you have a lot of it, buildings that you go in here that you can't touch the walls. You, yeah. You have to be very careful. Yeah, particularly in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we we had our versions of that and I love the, the Max arm for mm. being able to put a small kino as a backlight or a rim yeah. or, you know, just poke yeah. it where you wanted it to be yeah. without touching the ceiling. Um, tell me a little bit about how you work with your gaffer. If, do you have a, is it a, do you have a kind of long-standing relationship with a, uh, what, I, a group I of I did people? have a long time with a gaffer and uh, he, he was wonderful because he would, I'd wave my hands and then suddenly there'd be uh, a dozen <laughs> cream sauce yeah. in the early days up. Mm. And we... We had a good relationship. He was very much in favor of downsizing from the 40-footer. Mm. So once we got into the Alexa and understood how f much we could push the ISO, mm. uh, we downsized everything. So a smaller stopped vehicle. Carrying. Yeah. Smaller vehicle. You could get anywhere with it. But mm. you're up against the, the owners of the trucks, the Teamsters. Mm. Right. And you have political mm. issues that you have to be mm. very gentle about. Mm. And you give back a generator, the generator operator is not going to get that rented out in mm. a small town where you, mm. you're the only game in town and they're not happy. Right. Mm. But we are increasingly being able to light with block batteries. Right. This, is, this, is, this is the future without question. Yeah. 
there's yeah. a big movement in London now for um, you know carbon minimising the carbon footprint of uh, yeah. these diesel generators. Certainly, getting dispensation in central London for a diesel generator is going to become impossible over the yeah. coming years. I think. Yeah. So I do think lithium battery technology is where it's going to. I started by tying in, mm. and the, but that's mm. a dangerous procedure. Yeah. And yeah. in modern buildings, you can't yeah. get near their systems. Yeah. Um, I think the batteries are a great idea. We ended up just using small putt putts mm. for an M18. Mm. Mm. You, want a, you want a little shaft down yeah. the end of a street, you drag um, off a lamp a, and a stand and a putt-putt. Honda do an EU70, yeah. which is yeah, a great yeah. little, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's petrol, so at least you yeah. can get You can still use that in London, I think. Of course, so. people have issues with noise, but you'd run a 50-foot, mm. 100-foot stinger out yeah. and park it in a field yeah. and you never heard yeah. it. Yeah, um, yeah the, I'm absolutely certain the big tractor-trailer unit with a 1,700-amp Jenny on mm. it is gone. Mm. I did have fun in the old days, though, with scissor lifts, scissor arcs, oh, making yeah. lightning, because we were doing yeah, a horror I to, series. Yeah, I, I remember I talked to a, a director into using one of those, because um, uh, uh, David Lynch famously uses them, because yeah. you get all the different colors, as a, the, the arcs all different colors, so when you use a normal, if you use a, a normal strobe, it's just yeah. white lights off and on, binary, yeah, yeah, yeah. but with a scissor arc, you get the kind of weird magentas. Oh, and, and, it, and it glues itself together, and yeah. you have to pull it apart yeah. with these wooden scissors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the generators take a hell of a pounding. Mm. So I remember one night, yeah. the, after the generator so drove away, I mean. there was there was lead on the ground, oh, and wow. the thing had melted. And yeah. So yeah it was just, that reminds me of the old, did you ever use the old carbon arc lights? Yeah. Yeah. I was lucky. I was in doing a Hollywood movie. It was a Stephen King thing. Mm. <laughs> and... Um, the gaffer, I'd acquired the gaffer from Laszlo Kovacs because I didn't have a crew in LA. I was just suddenly thrust down there. I'd done a thing called um, Psycho 4 with oh, this director and right. he took me on um, this. Because um, you did a documentary on uh, the Laszlo and the, uh, the No, 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 no. I, I was doing a feature and, and I arrived and I had the director and it was right. all set up and I didn't have a crew. Oh, didn't know anybody. Right. And uh, Laszlo said that through people reached out and said, oh, you know, you can have my crew. And so I got his whole crew. I didn't have to think about it. <laughs> and when we got on the stage, um, it was at Warner Brothers, and they came to me. We had an indoor-outdoor set, and outside you could see the garden mm. on this uh, interior. And uh, they said, oh, we, we've got you some, some white carbon arcs. And I said, really <laughs> and they went and dragged them they were all in storage in the back area somewhere and they dragged them i said we got some carbons mm -hmm. we're so lucky to get these carbons because that was the problem mm. nobody made the carbons, carbons anymore, anymore quite right. apart from the mm. the smelliness and yeah, the, the, the haze in the air yeah. and so on yeah, yeah. but they were beautiful they were totally sunlight yeah. i never questioned it at all yeah and for I years i've used HMI, had sunlight pretty much isn't it yeah, yeah yeah i don't think you can ever beat those no there is this new uh, someone's telling me this new um uh, is it K35 to uh, an 18K that's got this ceramic disc? It's a ceramic disc, so it's like more of a point source than the ARRI ah, 18K. I don't know that. But still, nowhere near a carbon arc. No, no, that no, point no. source of a carbon yeah. arc can, can never really be beaten. That's, that's all about the challenge for the LED manufacturers because mm. even with a good carb, they're, they're around they're that too size. Big. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you take a, a, like a little 12-volt dado, mm. Yeah, fifty watt. Little, little, it's it's about. Yeah. I think Dados told yeah. me that at the seminar. He said it's like two to three millimeters. Yeah, is the arc. So you get a nice hard yeah. shot of light. Yeah. He used to do a light called a four three six as well, which is a a foot uh, thirty four hundred watt thirty six volt. 
bulb, uh-huh. which is that size, but 400 watts. Right. And that's the hardest light. So when I started my career doing hair commercials, I, yeah. I used to use that light all the time to try and get the, the shine in the hair. Yes. You, we used to have to use hard light to get the shine in the, 